If you have a copy of God's Word where you can read along with me, I invite you to the book of Galatians in the third chapter. Galatians chapter 3, as we continue our series of messages related to our proposed confession that we are looking at and considering. We come to the article on justification today. So Galatians, the third chapter, beginning at verse 10. Galatians 3, 10. For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be anyone who does not abide by all the things written in the book of the law and do them. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not of faith, rather the one who does them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us, for it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. This is God's word. Let's pray. By your spirit, Father, attend now your word. And may this be a word of salvation. To everyone here this day, for we pray it in Christ's name, amen. Blessing, cursing, what kind of words are these? I mean, we use the word blessing quite a bit, even culturally. It's not even relegated necessarily to a religious setting. Generically in our culture, it means a good thing, or to be blessed is to have a good life. Cursing, well, that word hardly gets used at all except in the context involving language. But these words are biblical words, especially as used here by Paul. They're deeper and more profound. They have to do with status, your status, your standing before God as these are the only two options available, cursed or blessed. There's nothing in between. Paul's letter to the Galatians is his most vociferous, vigorous, confrontational letter. Only letter of Paul anywhere in the New Testament where there's not a kind word said at the opening. There just isn't. He just jumps right in. I am astonished that you have so quickly abandoned the gospel that was preached to you. And just in case you were wondering how big a deal this was, he goes so far as then to say, if I or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel other than the one we first preached to you, let him be accursed. Twice he says this. One gets the impression 
that whatever it is Paul's talking about here in the gospel is a big deal. I mean, churches can be messed up, right? It's okay to agree with that. No perfect churches, assemblies of sinners, or all a mess. And it can be so bad that there's divisiveness like Corinth, or immorality like Corinth, or wild and woolly worship services that have gotten out of hand like Corinth, and even people questioning the nature of the resurrection like at Corinth. And yet Paul will call them saints in Christ Jesus. Now, he confronts them, but he doesn't have the same energy that you read here in the letter to the Galatians. But this concerns the question of the gospel. Michael Horton puts it this way, our American gospel has become a gospel of following your dreams and being so good, God will make all your dreams come true. But this has nothing to do with the God of the Bible. The whole issue of these verses is the central issue of religion, how to come into a right relationship with God. It's described in two ways being justified before God and having eternal life. It echoes Jesus' prayer in John 17, and this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God in Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Why is this so important? Because, my friends, what we deal with today is the matter of living and dying. What we deal with today is the issue of eternity. What we deal with today are those anchoring points in life that remind us we are merely human and we are messed up humans at that. Came home to me powerfully again this morning, not just in the text, but in the providence of God. We have, I received word I saw today where young man who grew up in this church has since left. He's part of another church, but he lost his wife yesterday to cancer. They're in about their 30s. And of course, personal level, it brought all sorts of things to mind and heart. But it also, again, fastened in mind and heart and soul when it comes to the issue of justified before God we better get this right because people's eternal destiny hinges on it I'm thankful this young woman knew the Lord her husband knows the Lord what is it that we are saying well the article says this we believe that justification is the great gospel blessing. I like that. The great gospel blessing. Now, I'm not going to preach the confession, but be patient, all right? Is the great gospel blessing which Christ secures for those who believe in Him. Justification includes the pardon of sin and the promise of eternal life on principles of righteousness. Bestowed not in consideration of any works of righteousness which we have done but solely through faith in the Redeemer's blood through faith His perfect righteousness is freely imputed to us by God 
which brings us into a state of peace and favor with him and secures every other blessing for time and eternity. Now, folks, I'm going to tell you, in concentration, that is one gloriously good statement. Jay Packer, everybody knows about Jim Packer's introductory essay in John Owen's Death of Death and the Death of Christ, an essay that went on to be published independently. It was that good. But he also wrote one for a book by James Buchanan called The Doctrine of Justification. And he said, justification by faith has been the central theme of the preaching in every movement of revival and religious awakening within Protestantism from the Reformation to the present day. Folks, if we don't get this part right, there's no reason to expect God to bless anything we do. This is the gospel. Justification means to be in God's favor. Eternal life means to be in fellowship with God. Keep in mind Paul's fighting for the very souls of these folks in Galatia. He's battling a false gospel which is endangering them. Human history demonstrates this. Our own immediate culture demonstrates this. That we think somehow we earn the blessing of God. That somehow by birth, by virtue, by inheritance, by action, by labor, by dedication, by sacrifice, by something. We earn the blessing of God. But God's blessing is only poured out through Christ in the cross. Only. That doesn't mean God won't show you kindness even if you're not a Christian in your life. He will. But friend, even those kindnesses you need to see is in a sense connected to God's love for this world in sending His only begotten Son. If He will send His Son to die for wretched sinners, what is it for Him to grant you a few more years of life, a little bit of rain, a little bit of kindness, a little bit of cash? For He's given the greatest thing. Two things to consider. Quite simply this. Earning leads to the curse and believing leads to the blessing. What Paul does in these verses, right here in the middle of this letter to the Galatians, is quote from Old Testament texts. When he says, cursed be everyone who does not abide by all the things written in the book of the law to do them, that's actually a quote from Deuteronomy 27, 26. Cursed be anyone who does not confirm the words of this law by doing them. And all the people shall say, Amen. When he says the righteous shall live by faith, he's quoting Habakkuk 2.4. Behold, his soul is puffed up. It's not upright within him, but the righteous shall live by his faith. When he says the one who does them shall live by them, he's quoting Leviticus 18.5. Ye shall therefore... Keep my statutes and my rules. If a person does them, he shall live by them. I am the Lord. And when he says, cursed is everyone who's hanged on a tree, he's echoing Deuteronomy, the 21st chapter. And if a man has committed a crime punishable by death and he is put to death and you hang him on a tree, his body shall not remain all night on the tree, but you shall bury him the same day for a hanged man is cursed by God. You shall not defile your land the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance. Now, blessing, cursing, hung on a tree, justification, living, dying. 
These are deep, profound words. But my friend, they are the words that are the anchors for our lives, our understanding, and how we live as believers. And my friend, if you don't know Christ, these words should matter to you today. For this is about your eternal soul before God. Earning leads to the curse. That is, working for your salvation always ends in death. Why would we say that? Because Paul says it. Everyone who relies on the works of the law are under a curse, for it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all the things written in the book of the law and do them. The law provided sacrifices, but even these were insufficient. The only complete sacrifice comes in the person and work of Jesus Christ. The law provided for failures in terms of what you could do in the sacrificial system, but it never fully satisfied for sin. That's what the author of Hebrews said. If they satisfied, why'd they have to be done every year? And when you consider the unnumbered gallons of bloodshed, the innumerable animals sacrificed, and by the way, none of volunteer. Every year the reminder, we have sinned, we have sinned, we are sinful, we are sinful, we are sinful. The law comes and says, abide in every single part of it. The problem with law-keeping, even with the grace of an atoning sacrifice in the Old Covenant, is that we tend to think in terms of keeping score. The sacrifices, rather than seen as a stark reminder of sin and that we deserve death, lead, leads to an act of my goodness, my faithfulness, my righteousness. I brought the sacrifice. I did the right thing. Look at me, how good I am. Further, this leads to death not only because you must be completely obedient. And I say this again, my friend. Do not for a moment make the mistake of thinking God grades on a curve. He does not. There is no curve. It is pass-fail. And pass is 100% getting it right. Anything less than that is eternal damnation. So don't think somehow, well, I'll do my good stuff over here and the bad stuff over here, and hopefully the good stuff outweighs the bad. I've said it before, I say it again. Your sin weighs by the ton while your righteousness weighs by the ounce. There is no way forward there. The law can only command, it cannot empower. The one who does them shall live by them. Objectively, here's the reality. Listen to Tim Keller. Attempting salvation by law obedience means we are cursed. We are under the curse of God. I love the way Spurgeon writes about this or preached about this. The law seems also to blight all my hopes with its stern sentence. Cursed is everyone that continueth not in all the things which are written in the book of the law to do them. Only too well did I know that I had not continued in all these things. So I saw myself accursed, turned, uh, turned which way I might. If I had not committed one sin, that made no difference. 
If I'd committed another, I was under the curse. What if I'd never blasphemed God with my tongue? Yet if I'd coveted, I'd broken the law. He who breaks a chain might say, I didn't break that link. And the other link, no. But if you break one link, you've broken the chain. Ah, me, how I seemed shut up then. I defended against the justice of God. I was impure and polluted. And I used to say, if God doesn't send me to hell, he ought to do it. I sat in judgment upon myself and pronounced the sentence that I felt would be just. So the law worried and troubled me at all points. It shut me up in an iron cage. And every way of escape was eventually, effectually blocked up. That is what the law does. And folks, let me take it a step further. Our extra rules don't lead to holiness either. See, the Pharisees made attempts to improve. Now, I've got to be fair here. They weren't trying to improve on the law. They were trying to improve on themselves. Okay. So what they thought is this. Well, the, the law commands don't do this. So how do we keep from doing that? Well, maybe what we do is we back up and we build a fence. And we'll say, absolutely, don't do that. But so you don't ever get close to doing that, here's another rule. Or two. Or, what was it, 613? When it was all said and done? And the fence became as important, if not more so, than the actual commandment. We're always trying to improve on this. And it always ends up a mess. The fence or hedge, one brother put it, the laws accumulated into hundreds over the years were passed around orally. Soon it became apparent they were far from optional. They, they became every inch as important as the Scripture, along with laws and in some instances far more crucial. Now, folks, there's lots of ways we could illustrate this today. I, I was rereading portions of Jerry Bridges' Transforming Grace this week. And by the way, if you don't have a summer read and you've never read that, may I suggest to you, Transforming Grace will do your soul a lot of good. You'll be better for having read it. But Jerry shared this testimony. When I was growing up, I wasn't allowed to go to the local pool halls. As I look back, now folks, I get that. I'm old enough to understand that one. I, I remember looking, what's a pool hall? You don't need to go in there. Well, I'm 10. What am I going to do? You know, I, You're my ride. <laughs> we live out in the country. Can I go? No. Well, look, No. So, he said, I'm sure, as I look back, my parents didn't want me to come in under the influence of the unsavory characters who frequented those halls. So they built a fence to keep that from happening. Don't go into those pool halls. The problem was, I didn't understand why. So I grew up thinking it was a sin to play pool. Now, don't laugh. I really did, and I get that. Imagine my consternation when I moved to a Christian conference center and saw a beautiful antique pool table in the rec room and godly men playing pool. 
Parents, can I let you know a little secret? If you're going to demand more than the text demands, explain yourself. You may save your children a lot of confusion down the road. Never mistake your rules for God's. But see what that tells us, folks, all along the way. Our earning always leads to a curse. When you labor and slave and try to earn the favor of God, what you find is you're still in trouble. There is no ladder long enough. Every ladder is left standing in hell. There is no way. No way. But that leads us to the second part. Believing leads to the blessing. That is, trusting in Christ ends always in life. Because Christ has taken the curse for us. As we were singing those hymns, part of it for me is going back in mind and heart. Though I was not there, the reminders of what the text tells us of the suffering of the cross. I cannot sing those things without that coming out and being part of that experience. I love Jared Wilson, his little book, Imperfect Disciple. Jesus wasn't blowing smoke. His major contribution to the world was not a set, a set of pithy observations. He was born in a dirty barn, grew up in a dirty world, got baptized in a muddy river. He put his hands on the oozing wounds of lepers. He let a prostitute brush his hair and soldiers pull it out. He went to dinner with dirtbags, both religious and irreligious. His closest friends were a collection of crude fishermen and cultural traders. He felt the spittle of the Pharisees on his face and the metal hooks of the jailer's whip in the flesh of his back. He got sweaty and dirty and bloody, and he took all of the sins and mess of the world unto himself, unto the cross to which he was nailed naked in his work and his words Jesus is making promises to the beaten, the torn, the broken, the depressed, the desperate, the poor, the orphan, the abandoned, the cheated, the betrayed, the accused, the left behind. He is, believe it or not, promising to fix it all. Walk with me. Hmm? We'll walk in your mind here. You ready? Hanged on a tree. Let's go back a thousand years before Paul writes this. A young man, son of a king, a prince, has staged a coup. He's chased his father David out of town. He's gone into battle to defend his right as king. His army's lost. He's fleeing. A young man, strong with a beautiful head of hair, of which he was quite proud. I already don't like him much. Hanged on a tree, cursed. Absalom rebels against his father, caught in a tree on the very visible representation of his pride, his hair, where he was then executed by Job. Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. Go back a little further. 400 years before that, we walk around the Israelite camp Serpents, snakes have come into the camp. Every time they bite someone, they die. And the Lord tells Moses, make a bronze serpent. Put it up on a pole. If anyone who's bitten will look at the snake, they'll be healed. And the curse of the snakes 
has been turned into the way of salvation. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. That everyone believes in him may have eternal life. But let's go back before that. Go back all the way to a beautiful garden. Our parents violated one single command of our God. Don't eat of this tree. The one that I've identified is the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, the Lord says. But our parents believed a lie and sought to turn this tree into a tree of life. We'll decide for ourselves what's good and evil. We will live out from under submission to God and the results tree of the knowledge of good and evil they tried to make it a tree of life instead becomes the tree of death and the place of cursing the tree hanged on the tree the wickedness of our parents and eating of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil then being banned from the tree of life every time a person under the law was convicted of a capital crime executed they were hanged on a tree here's your knowledge of good and evil it has come to you in judgment For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, that in him we might become the righteousness of God, the cross, the tree. Here's the outcome of rebelling against God. Only on the cross, the one who was God in the flesh, holy, righteous, undefiled, takes on our identity as the sinner and acts as our substitute. Here's the cross, the stake, the place of suffering and judgment and death becomes the tree of life. I love the strength of this verse. It doesn't say Jesus came to try to redeem those under the curse of the law. <laughs> he did it. My friend, believing is blessing because Christ has taken the curse for us. Further, it is blessing because this is the only way to be justified. The righteous shall live by faith. Old preacher, First Baptist Dallas, Dr. W.A. Criswell. I got to hear Criswell live once. He was quite a preacher. So superlative is the merit of his life that his soul's agony is efficacious to the saving of us all. It's not merely a man dying, it is God in the flesh dying. And the faith accesses life. You find righteousness, not by trying to be righteous, but by trusting the righteousness of another. Paraphrase Jerry Bridges again from Transforming Grace. What that means is, friend, you get an A when you deserve an F. Every last one of us deserves an F. But we get an A because somebody did for us what we could not do. Now, I know that, well, that's a little humiliating, isn't it, to admit that you're that bad off? And there, my friend, is the gate to salvation. Nobody comes in arrogantly. <laughs> Nobody comes in, oh, Lord, aren't you so happy I'm here? I know this whole kingdom thing wasn't working out so well, but now I'm here. We'll get something done. 
God have mercy. See, that's why emphasis never Christ in the manger or Christ the moral example or Christ the motivator or somehow Christ the healer. The consequence is devastating inevitably to the church. My friend, this is your hope. Do you grant, Christian, are you struggling today? Have you wondered? Have you, have, I don't know anybody. Had a tough week. Or maybe it's just, they're always tough. Is that, I'm not sure what to make of that. And the, the failure has just slapped you in the face. And you're wondering, well, I'd sure be sick of me by now. I am. Father in heaven, why are you tolerating this? It's because, my friend, he's, he's punished someone else for you. When Luther said this is the article upon which the church stands or falls, that is not too extreme. Because if you lose this, you've lost your reason to be a church. You no longer have good news, all you have is good advice. And folks, they can get advice anywhere. We're here today because of good news. There is a Savior for sinners. It doesn't matter how bad you've been. He's sufficient. It doesn't matter how much you've messed this up. He's sufficient. It doesn't matter how much you messed it up after you confessed faith and after you got baptized. I remind you, Christians, Christ died for Christian sins too. Amen. Sometimes we act like we're the ones got to pay for our sins after we become Christians. Well, I messed up, so I've got to do so much penance. You'd be happier as Roman Catholics, folks. It's easier. Baptists, we get all kind of weird about this thing. I'm not, I'm not picking on Roman Catholics. I just think there are some Baptists that would be happier there. Well, my friend, if you know the grace of our God, you know the only reason you enter glory is because of what has been done for you. Not what is done in you, not how much transformation has taken place, not how good you get at being a Christian. The only way anybody in this room, the only way anybody for all history of the Christian message has ever walked into glory is because of a righteousness outside us. Him. Him. I believe him. The Spirit is only given to those who have faith in Christ. We receive the promised Spirit through faith. But the Lord not only declares us not guilty, but He comes to dwell with us. The Lord's no longer interested in geographical spaces, but biological spaces. Us. That's why we're called saints. The dwelling place of the Lord. My friends, this is the glorious doctrine of your salvation. You might not have understood at the beginning. I didn't get it. I knew I had to trust Christ, but nobody had ever really explained to me 
exactly what that meant, not in any detail. And I cannot, I have said before, I cannot describe adequately the burden that lifted off of me when I finally understood what I'd done. More than that, what he had done. I trusted him, but it wasn't until I read and understood and grasped the words, he can no more send me to hell than he can send his own son to hell, for he has given me his righteousness. Wow. Now, folks, that ought, that ought to even make a Baptist want to dance just a little bit. Holiness? Yes. But holiness of life is always the result, the result of knowing you're not guilty. I don't think you ever live the Christian life well until you know that he is satisfied. John Stott said it this way, we're not saved by a distant Christ who died hundreds of years ago and lives millions of miles away, but by an existential Christ who having died and risen again is now our contemporary. <laughs> Your Savior is alive. He is at the right hand of the Father, and by the Spirit, He is present with you. And you are being saved by something done for you 2,000 years ago outside the city of Jerusalem. So, folks, it's July, right? Can I remind you of a line from a Christmas hymn as we draw this to a close? O come, O come, Emmanuel and ransom captive Israel that mourns in lonely exile here until the Son of God appear. The Son of God has appeared. God with us. Friend, if you're not a Christian, I say to you now, you can become a Christian right where you are. And what do I do? Believe in Him. What about my sin? Well, admit you're a sinner. Repent, turn from it. Trust Him. What kind of promises do I have to make? This ain't about your promises, they're about His. Okay? Trust Him. And in that is life. The just shall live by faith. Father,